Father, you tell us that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And so we ask you this morning that you would guide us by your word. Lord, I can imagine that many of us here today feel like we are walking in darkness. That the storms of life have come upon us. Either because of our own sin or the effects of sin in this broken world. So Lord, we come to you as your people. And we ask that you would use this text this morning to give us hope in the midst of darkness. We pray that you would give us peace in the storm. Would you show us that there is no one like Jesus? That he is our sure and steady anchor. And that he alone can carry us through the storm. Spirit, guide us into all truth that we may leave here today with hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On June 23rd, 2018, 12 teenage boys and their soccer coach went exploring in the caves of Thailand's Chiang Rai province following an afternoon soccer practice they had. As the team explored the caves, they began to realize that the heavy rains that the region had experienced over the last few days were beginning to fill up the caves they were exploring. But before they could act, it was already too late. The floodwaters began to rise so rapidly that it forced the team deeper into the caves, leaving them trapped between the dark, murky waters and the stony walls of the cave. What began as an afternoon of team building or an adventure with the, with the team turned into two weeks of cold, damp darkness waiting for rescue. Maybe you remember that story. I wonder how many of you have ever experienced maybe something like this. Now, I don't think any of us have been trapped in a cave in Thailand before, but I would venture to guess that there are many of you here today, as I prayed, who feel or feel right now that the floodwaters of life have taken you by surprise and you feel stuck in darkness, unsure of the way out. Maybe you've come here today physically or spiritually exhausted, looking for answers, wondering if rescue will ever come. It's in times like these, times in, in darkness, spiritual darkness and struggle, when questions of deep faith rise to the surface. Questions like, where are you, God? Will rescue ever come? Is there someone that's coming to bring us out of the dark, or do we have to figure it out on our own? As we look at our text this morning, we will see 12 disciples trapped in stormy darkness out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They are alone, they are exhausted, and they are waiting for rescue. I hope as we study this passage, we will see that Jesus alone is able to reach us in our darkest moments, that Jesus alone can comfort us in our darkness, and Jesus alone can bring us safely home. If you're uh, taking notes this morning, I've outlined the, the text with four points. <clears throat> the first point in verses 16 to 18, we'll see darkness is coming. Number two, Jesus reaches us in our darkness in verse 19. Verse 20, we'll see Jesus speaks to us in our darkness. And finally, verse 21, Jesus carries us through the darkness. Before we dive into the stormy scene, we need to remember our story's context. So if you were here last Sunday, you recall that Jesus' ministry has gained quite a following. And he miraculously feeds uh, 5,000 men plus women and children. And as Pastor Tommy called it, he fed them with a bag of Cheetos and a can of tuna fish. Uh, and these crowds, right, are absolutely thrilled with Jesus. Just look back at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. And we'll just see how happy these people are. 
It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So these people were so amazed with Jesus, so happy with their filet fish sandwiches that they are ready to make Jesus their Burger King. No, no, they're, they're king. And they're about to take him by, by force, right? It's pretty aggressive here. Yet as we learned last week, right, Jesus is not the type of king the people want, but rather the type of king the people need. Jesus did not first come into the world to overthrow an oppressive government, but instead Jesus came to defeat Satan, sin, and death. Jesus did not first come as a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. And so to uh, avoid being forcibly taken by this multitude, we see Jesus retreat to the mountain where the other gospels, both Matthew and Mark, tell us that he went to go pray by himself and then instructed his disciples to go across the sea. And before we move too, too quickly on from, from this point, I think we ought to acknowledge the real temptation that Jesus faced in this moment. The temptation to become a king here and now mirrors the temptation that Satan used against Jesus in the wilderness. If you remember, Satan is trying to do whatever he can to keep Jesus from the cross. Satan is saying, hey, hey here, Jesus, here's, here's your people, here's your army, take the easy way out and establish your kingdom now. Take the easy road instead of the road to Calvary. So we have to remember that Jesus constantly has to be choosing between the path of earthly fame and earthly glory or the way of the cross. And so what does Jesus do in order to fight this temptation? He retreats to the mount to pray to his father, which I think ought to be instructive for us as we fight temptation ourselves. But as we turn to the point of our text and back to the disciples, we'll see that the miracle that disciples just witnessed is quickly forgotten as they find themselves alone on a dark and stormy sea in ancient Palestine. Look at verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. You can see the way John describes the scene here. You as a reader can anticipate that something bad is about to happen. right? He mentions that it's evening, so the darkness of night is coming. And the 12 disciples, they climb into a boat that most historians put at about seven and a half feet wide, about 26 and a half feet long, about 15 people can sit in it. And so they, they go out in the night in this small little boat out to sea. And the sea itself was always understood with negative connotations, especially in Hebrew poetry. That, you know, the sea was, was dark, it was ominous, it was chaotic. So m many Jews would never even dare go into the sea at all. Nevertheless, we know that there are several experienced fishermen right amongst the disciples, and so they they head out, they obey Jesus' orders, and they, they start on this five to six mile voyage across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And soon enough, the sun is set, and the disciples are now in darkness. And John reminds us that Jesus was not with them. Anytime uh, in the Gospels you see that Jesus leaves the disciples and he's not with them, it usually means there's a time of testing that's about to come or something not so great's about to happen. And we'll see this later in John, right when Jesus goes and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, he leaves his disciples to stay watch. Um, they fall asleep and, and Jesus is then arrested soon after. And sure enough, look at verse 18, that's what happens. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, this is not a strange occurrence. This wind is not a, maybe a miraculous wind, but for this body of water, we, we know that the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. 
And because of its elevation, uh, it's susceptible even today to cool air coming in and displacing the warm, moist air to create these sea squalls that can leave even modern boats in great danger, especially in the black of night. We've got to remember there's no Coast Guard, there's no flares to send up, there's no lighthouses to, to guide the disciples to shore. And we've got to imagine, right, this is, this is ancient Israel, and so the visibility at this time of night, and there's no light pollution that's around uh, the lake, and during a storm, it's probably impossible to see their destination. It's quite the change in circumstance for the disciples, right? They're just coming off this mountaintop experience where not only they've seen Jesus' miracles, but now thousands have now seen Jesus' miracles. They're gaining this, this following, and now what happened? They are all alone, they're without Jesus, and they're stuck in stormy darkness. You've got to imagine some of the disciples thinking, like, why couldn't we just left in the morning? Like, it's just, that would have been much easier. You know, whose idea was this? You know, and, and where in the world is, is Jesus? So we have there. So, like, how did they get in this situation? Well, we, we learn in, in parallel accounts of this of this story, and, and especially in Mark six forty five, that Jesus Himself instructed them to go on ahead of them and sail out into the water in the evening. And they obeyed Jesus, and now they are in danger. I wonder how many of you have experienced a situation maybe like this, where you have obeyed Jesus, and it seems to have led you into a storm or more broken relationships or difficulties in your life. It's one thing to be stuck in darkness because of your own sin, but when trials and struggles come from what appears to be your actual obedience to Jesus, it can be, feel incredibly defeating, right? It may even feel like we've been forsaken by God. Or maybe you've had maybe one of those mountaintop experiences, uh, these God moments that is quickly followed by a season of testing and trial. So why does this happen? Well, Scripture reminds us that God often allows trials in our lives to test the genuineness of our faith. He wants to know whether we are going to stick with Him through the good times and through the bad. Do we trust that He is good even if our circumstances point everything in the other direction? Will we trust Him that He knows what's best for us and that nothing that we experience in this life is apart from His control? And that nothing we experience in life is in vain. As we see, as we'll see in the next few weeks, Jesus is, is not looking for bandwagon fans. He's not looking for an audience to do tricks for. He's also not looking for people who want Jesus to magically make all their problems go away. Rather, Jesus is looking for those who are willing to follow him to the cross. In the coming weeks, we'll find out that there is a great cost to follow Jesus. We're going to let Jesus obeyed his father, right? He obeyed his father perfectly, and it will cost him his life. Therefore, as his followers, we ought to be, not be surprised when we encounter various trials in life when we follow Jesus. Uh, we see this uh, even from the Apostle Peter in his epistle. One of the guys actually in the boat, this is what he says. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God does not send us into the darkness arbitrarily, but in order to make us rely on him and not our own strength. He does it to make us lose our taste for this world and grow our appetite for the world to come. 
Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus won't give us these nice long seasons of sweet relief in him. But we ought not to be surprised when obeying Jesus feels like a battle. When it feels like we are rowing into the wind. Jesus often sends us into the deepest darkness in order to show that his love extends further still. See in our text, right, that Jesus himself has just rejected the easy road by denying the earthly crown. Now the disciples had to trust the same Jesus who provided the bread for them would be able to provide protection in the storm. They had to trust that Jesus is greater than the storm, that no darkness is too dark for him. Look at verse 19, and we'll see that Jesus alone can reach us in our darkness. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So the disciples have now made it three or four miles, you know, into the six-mile journey into the storm. And if we fill in some of the details from Matthew's gospel account, we learn that this is about the fourth watch of the night which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And I don't know about you, but uh, 3 a.m. is not a, a great time to be up. Uh, I would say since having kids, I've seen a lot more 3 a.m. than I care to ever see again. And uh, it's, it's not a fun hour to be up. And you see, furthermore, if you do the math and you figure that, okay, they left in the evening around 6 p.m. before sun goes down, and now it's at least a little after 3 a.m., that means these guys have been rowing for close to nine hours, battling the wind and the waves for much of that time. So these, these poor guys are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night, completely worn out, probably drenched from head to toe without any sign of the shore. Then all of a sudden, something even more fearful than the storm shows up. There is a dude walking on the sea coming towards them. The, the Gospel of Mark tells us that the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost, a phantasma, a phantom, coming towards them, presumably to announce their impending doom. These disciples, they had seen water turn to wine. They had seen sick people made well. They had seen the feeding of the 5,000. But then this is something that put the fear of God in their hearts. As we see, again, it's not a ghost that's coming towards them, but it is the God-man. Jesus, the ruler of the wind and the waves. And he is walking over the dark, chaotic sea with complete calm and command. Now, some liberal scholars will try to explain away this miracle, and, and they'll say, well, maybe there's just a really long sandbar that he's just kind of like making it look like he's, he's going out there. And, or, or they'll say, you know, maybe Jesus is just walking on, on the shoreline, and, and the disciples are kind of hugging the shore. But, but that's clearly not what John, who's one of the guys in the boat, tells us. He tells us that, hey, they're three or four miles inland, farther than any sandbar or and nowhere near the shore. And if he's just walking on the, on the shoreline, right, that doesn't explain the fear that the disciples had. You know, they just would have just waved at him if he's at the shore. It's like, no, but he's, he's on the water. And we need to remind our, our modern imaginations that this is not a movie. These are not special effects that Jesus is working here. There's no water jetpacks that he's got that's kind of helping him across the, the stormy sea. Rather, John is saying very clearly that Jesus is walking on the water, something that people do not do. This is a flat-out miracle. You know, it would have been impressive if Jesus was just swimming the three or four miles, like even in the, in, into the storm. But no, Jesus comes to them on the water as one who stands in dominion over them. It didn't matter that these disciples were in the middle of the lake. It didn't matter that it was the darkest part of the night. It didn't matter if it was amidst the wind and the waves and they were utterly exhausted. Jesus is still able to reach the disciples. 
one of my favorite parts of uh, ministry here at Kalispar Castle is doing uh, member inter- membership interviews. And, and in these interviews, I get to hear stories of faith from people in our congregation who will testify that when all hope seems lost, when the comforts of the world have failed them, when, when a business goes under, when a spouse has abandoned them, when their sin has left them felt utterly unredeemable, the Lord walks towards them in the midst of their darkness and gives them hope. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in our text. He does not stand on the mountainside and calm the storms way up there. No, he, he comes down into the darkness, into the storm, and comes to us. And God doesn't, he doesn't stay distant in our pain. He doesn't stumble his way through uh, the darkness, but rather he walks authoritatively over it and reaches us when no other help could reach us. And when Jesus reaches us, what does he do? He speaks to us in our darkness. Look at verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus speaks to us in our darkness. In order to to calm their fears, Jesus doesn't lecture them uh, about not having trusted in him. You know, one commentator even made the, the comment that if they just gathered up these 12 basses of bread, more than likely these, this bread is actually in the boat with them. And so they have a miracle in the boat with them to help them trust Jesus, but he doesn't, he doesn't point that out to them. He doesn't rebuke them for that. He doesn't tell them to just row faster. Come on, guys, like, just pick up the pace. You'll, you'll get there. No, he comes and he reminds them of who he is. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Uh, just recently, my, my daughter Emma, who just turned two, uh, you may have seen her at some point running around here looking for, for donuts. Uh, one night, all of a sudden, she learned how to crawl, crawl out of her crib, open the door, and come see us into our room. It was, a, it was quite a frightening night, actually. <laughs> and so now, over the past two weeks, uh, we have now been transitioning her to her, her big girl bed, uh, her toddler bed. And and it's interesting, as she's grown up, as we've seen her, her grow, we realize, again, her cries at night uh, no longer are as one as an infant who cries when they're hungry, just like her brother does, but, but rather as a little girl who is now scared of the dark and has bad dreams. And when Jessica and I hear Emma cry, we go to her in the middle of the night and we don't first tell her, honey, you're, you're being just a little irrational right now. <laughs> There's no monsters here. Well, we'll explain to you that this, this is not true. No, we don't do that. What, what do we say? And we tell her, Sweepy, it's, it's okay. Mommy, mommy and daddy are here. You don't have to be afraid. We remind her that the people who love her most are with her, and she is comforted. Church, Jesus is like a parent who hears the cries of his children in the middle of the night and comes to their aid. He turns on the light and tells us, Daddy, Daddy's here. You don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the dark because the one who separated the dark from the night, the light from the dark, is with us. As we see in our text, simply knowing Jesus calms the disciples' fears. I think that should be instructive for us today, something for us to consider When Jesus speaks to you in your darkness, is it a comfort to you? And do you even recognize his voice? Do you run to the word for comfort when trials come, or are you quick to question Jesus as to why he has you in the storm? 
Do you see him as the only one who can actually help you out and to fulfill his promises to protect you? Or do you look for other help? As parents quickly uh, find out, pretty much the moment you, you leave the hospital with your, your newborn, that you have little to no control over what happens to your children. Our words, our, present, our, protect, our presence, our protection may, may comfort them for, for a time, but soon enough, mom and dad won't be enough. They need to hear someone else. They need to hear someone who can answer their silent cries of their hearts and truly promise that everything will be okay. They can back up their word. And that is why, again, it's super essential for us as a church to make sure that we teach our children not to look to ourselves, but to look to Jesus, who is the one, the only one, who can reach them in their deepest fears and calm, calm them in the night. And we as a church need to model what it looks like to trust Jesus in the midst of the storm for them. So in order to teach about Jesus and teach them about Jesus, we have to do ourselves and ask ourselves, do we know this Jesus and do we trust him? Do our lives say that we trust him? As we look more closely at Jesus' words to his disciples, we realize that they are not just words of comfort, but they are a declaration of his divinity. He tells them why he can be trusted. Whether the disciples knew this or not, Jesus is making known to them that he is not simply a miracle worker, but he is the great I am, the one who made himself known to Moses and the one now making himself known to them. We see this in the phrase that Jesus uses to announce himself. He says, it is I. And in the Greek, uh, it's, it's ego eimi, which can be translated literally as I am or I am, I am. In the Greek language, again, this is not necessarily a, an unusual way to identify yourself. However, if we take the context of John's letter, uh, I think it's no coincidence that Jesus uses this phrase, ego eimi, to self-identify himself. We read in Exodus 3.14, Moses asks God, Whom shall I tell sent me? And Yahweh tells him, I am who I am has sent you. This name of God is translated ego eimi in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Furthermore, if you look at our context, there are images connecting Jesus' ministry to the Exodus narrative all over John's Gospel. For, for example, if you look at chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders, saying, For if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And the feeding of 5,000, again, is soon be to, to be connected to the provision of manna the Israelites had in the wilderness. And Jesus' command of the water, even now, is an allusion uh, most likely to God's control over the Red Sea as he parts it. And in coming weeks, as we study the I Am statements, we'll see Jesus makes similar declaration to the Jews in John 8 when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Ego, me." Church, when we realize that the one who spoke light into darkness draws near to us in our darkness, we don't have to be afraid. And we can trust that he can carry us through it. That he is our sure and steady anchor. So we've seen that the darkness is coming. We're all going to face trials in this life when we follow Jesus. We've learned that Jesus is the only one who can reach us in our darkness. Jesus speaks to us in our darkness. And finally, Jesus will carry us through the darkness. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. 
and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, if we take this language at face value, it would seem as Jesus, if Jesus performs another miracle here, right? Remember that the disciples are in the middle of the lake, and it would, it would seem here that Jesus came out there walking on, on water, and if the winds had just died down when Jesus gets in the boat, we see this immediately. Immediately you would have to include the time it took exhausted men to row the two to three miles to shore, which I think seems pretty unlikely. Therefore, I'm inclined to believe that when Jesus got in the boat, he miraculously kind of teleports them to the, to the shore, to their destination. Uh, furthermore, I, I think John concludes his account of this story in this way to make it clear that Jesus is indeed God-made flesh. Look at Psalm 107.23. It'll be up on the screen. And as I read it, just look for the similarities between this passage and, the, and our passage as well. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. We see in the psalm, men who are caught in a storm, they're at their wit's end, and they cry to the Lord for help, and God delivers them from all their trouble, calming the storm and bringing them to safety. And again, it's, it's not hard to see the similarities between this psalm and our passage, especially verse 21. I think John is helping his readers see clearly that Jesus is no ordinary man, but the Lord who commands the wind and the waves. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New, and he's standing right in front of the disciples. Jesus and his glory are the point of this passage. Yet, yet why does Jesus put the disciples in this, in this peril? Why does he put them through this long night? And I, again, I don't think that Jesus sent them out in the storm to show, hey guys, look, look what I can do. You know, I can walk on water. I can, I can teleport you whenever you want. I don't think he's just saying, hey, look at me. But I think he's showing them who he truly is. And by doing so, he is preparing his disciples for the hardships that await them. He wants them to see and to know that no matter how hopeless the situation is, no matter how dark the darkness seems, that they can trust Jesus is in control of it all, and he alone can bring them through it. We'll see at the end of this chapter 6 uh, that the crowds that are seeking after Jesus don't truly care about Jesus or what he has to say. They're really only after this free buffet that they just had. And, and when Jesus serves them up a meal that they don't particularly care for, and they realize that there's a cost to following Jesus. These crowds who, you know, not too long ago, the day before, wanted to make him king, will abandon him. And Jesus will turn to his disciples and he will ask them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter will respond, one of the guys in the boat, says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I believe this story is preparing the disciples for that moment. And this story reminds us that following Jesus won't take away the difficulties in life or keep us from suffering, but rather Jesus promises all who follow him that nothing we experience in this life is meaningless and each trial is meant to solidify our faith so that we might know that no matter how dark the darkness gets, that he will hold us fast 
and he will carry us through it. Yet in our darkness and in our suffering, in our sin, right, we'll often look to everything other than Jesus to get through the storm. We'll listen to the world's counsel and to tell us that we're, we're good enough or we're strong enough. And if you just kind of pull up your bootstraps and you'll be able to, to get through it. The world will excuse your sin and say, you know, sin is you know, just an arbitrary thing. It's, a, it's an ancient thing. If it say you do what you, you feel is right and, and ask, ask you to dull your conscience to the darkness. And we'll even try to dull, let's say, when, when hard things come, right? It's, it's easy not to run to God's word, but distract ourselves with TV or Netflix or whatever it might, it might be, knowing full well that we're just trying to escape the big questions of life, trying to fake it till we'll make it. And we'll believe that if we just try hard enough, if we just discipline ourselves enough, if we just row hard enough, that we will be able to make it through. Yet Jesus shows us here that our survival spiritually is not based on our ability to gut it out, but rather upon Jesus who promises us in Philippians 1.6 that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you will complete it. Or in Hebrews 12, which tells us that Jesus is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Or in John 10, we'll get to in a few months, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Church, all other religions put us in a boat and God gives us an oar and he says, hey, just just try your best and hope you can make it. The Christianity says you're in a boat and there are a whole bunch of holes in it and you are sinking. And your oar that you have, it's broken. It doesn't do anything. You got no life jacket. You've got no hope unless Jesus shows up and brings you to safety. And for those who trust in Christ, who look to the great I am, we can have hope in darkness because he has promised that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. My hope, our hope, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. George, I don't know if you've been there before. Maybe you've tried the world and you've tried other hopes. They always prove out the same way. All other ground is sinking sand. July 7th, two weeks after the 12 boys and their soccer coach were trapped in the cave, the Thai authorities determined that if they did not act today, the cave would soon be completely flooded and the boys would be lost. So using an elaborate rescue plan that included over 100 foreign and domestic divers and Navy SEALs, one by one, uh, the boys were loaded onto kind of a stretcher and a pulley system, and they were slowly taken out of the cave. And after three days, all the boys and the coach were rescued. But it was not without great cost. If you remember one Thai Navy SEAL drowned uh, when he ran out of oxygen trying to get the boys um, their supplies. He gave his life in order to save others. As we follow Jesus through the Gospel of John, we will realize that in order to secure our rescue, it would cost Jesus his life as well. The one who could feed 5,000 men and women and children and even more, 
one who could walk on the water, the one who created the universe, would give up his life for a ransom for many. If you're here today and you feel like you're in darkness, if you're exhausted from all the rowing that you've been doing, both spiritually and just in your life, that the waves feel like they're coming upon you, that you feel like you're about to drown, you feel like sin and your guilt are too much, all we need to do is look to the cross and look to the empty tomb. For Jesus, right, he, he entered into our darkness. The scariest thing, the thing that we ought to be frightened of the most is death, and death was conquered by him. And he was risen again from the grave to give us hope that no matter how dark the darkness gets, Jesus has conquered it, and there is hope in him. And if you don't know this hope, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if, you, if you've tried everything else in the world, and has not brought you comfort, I would love to talk to you about where we find this hope and what does it means to trust in Jesus. And as I said, there are plenty of people in this church here who can testify to that when their hope was lost, Jesus showed up and he has proved himself faithful time and time again. And he can bring you through your greatest darkness. And church, we know that, that storms will come. We have seen storms in this church already. We've only been a church for about a year and a half or so. And we have seen storms in this place. Hard things have happened. But we know that when these storms come, and we know they'll come again, that we don't have to be afraid. For the one who conquered the grave stands over the darkness and promises us to bring us safely home until he comes again. Church, let's pray.